Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another edition of the Mo News Podcast. Today, we have a special interview with a great investigative reporter. His name is Walt Bogdanich. He actually spent time at 60 Minutes at CBS. He's now been an investigative reporter for a long time at the New York Times. His most recent investigation lasted several years into the world's most powerful and influential consulting firm, McKinsey. Some of you might have heard of McKinsey. Some of you might know people who work there. Uh, it certainly has gotten a lot of attention in recent years. And he spent some time digging into this mysterious world and a number of their clients, which range from China to Purdue Pharma to the CIA. In fact, he says that McKinsey has more secrets than the CIA. So they were very difficult to investigate. Um, they can sell for corporations. They can sell for governments. Sometimes they're consulting for two sides, both sides at the same time as negotiations happen. And so Walt breaks down what takes place there and in particular spent some time on their consulting for Purdue Pharma. Uh, and the opioid crisis, their role in that, the several hundred million dollar fine they recently had to pay. So we dive in to the good, the bad, and the ugly with McKinsey, with Walt here. It's all the subject of his new book, When McKinsey Comes to Town. And I think everyone will come away with some interesting perspective on what happens in some of the back rooms and why some of the decisions that you see public, how they came to be, and who's in the room making these decisions. All right, before we get started here, a reminder to consider joining Mo News Premium for early access to podcasts like this one to support more of these types of interviews, as well as access extra content on our members-only Instagram feed. That's where we do behind-the-scenes content and deep dives, answer your questions about the news. And of course, by joining Mo News Premium, it's an opportunity for you to support independent journalism, support what we're doing here at Mo News. You can get it for just $7 a month or $70 a year. That's two free months on the annual package. We also have a lifetime subscription available. You can check it all out over at mo.news slash premium. With that, here's today's conversation. All right, I'm here with Walt Bogdanich, the uh, author of When McKinsey Comes to Town, longtime investigative reporter. We were just chatting about the small media world, uh, and we, we missed each other by a few years at CBS News, Walt. We did. I'm, I'm sorry we did not meet until now, but it's a pleasure. It's it's great to be chatting with you. Uh, found your book fascinating. It's had an impact over the last year. The paperback is now out. But I want to start with the beginning here. Um, what led you to be interested in McKinsey and get on the McKinsey beat, which ultimately leads to the book? Well, our executive editor at the time, Dean Baquet, stopped by the investigative unit and said, wanted to know what we were interested in pursuing. And of course, being executive editor, he had his own ideas. And one of the things he suggested was, you know, why don't we take apart some major corporation and look at how it wields power and how it does it and what it does well and what it does not do well. And, you know, I thought about that and I couldn't really figure out, you know, a perfect example of that. But in digging around, I came across McKinsey. And I really knew nothing about that company other than a couple of my friends went to work for them and were very secretive about what they were doing. And that intrigued me. And they told me how powerful it was. And so I decided that maybe it was worth a look. Um, it was a intimidating thought to be trying to investigate a company whose entire business model is based on secrecy. Um, so it was something that you don't want to plunge into right away yeah. because you want results. You want to be able to get people quoted on the record. And so that was a challenge. You've said before that McKinsey has more secrets than the CIA. 
Yes, and and I and I believe that. I mean, that wasn't hyperbole. I mean, they they advised the CIA, of course, and they advised the Pentagon, and they advised all the major you know branches of government in this country and in other countries. They are just big, uh, powerful, and secretive, and. You know, that's catnip for investigative reporters. And uh, I wanted to know more. Someone tells me, you know, we've got a lot of secrets we'd want to share. Well, <laughs> you know, that's my job to try and figure out what they are. So we're talking about McKinsey's consulting company, been around for decades, you know, multi-billion dollar company, tens of thousands of employees. Talk to me about their origins. The, you know, what is the official line from McKinsey as far as what is their business? What are their goals? What is their mission? Their mission is to advise corporations, management to tell people, you know, uh, how to get the way, find their way out of difficult situations. Um, they say they have the answers and, and people apparently believe them. Corporations believe them. So they are management consultants. They are not union consultants. So you can imagine at the end of the day, you know, where their advice ends up. Uh, in terms of uh, who benefits and who doesn't. Right. For many companies, it's about the shareholders getting their stock price up, getting profitability up. And so they'll call the folks at McKinsey. Um, and, and how does McKinsey go about doing their work? Well, they send in uh, young people, usually under the supervision of a, of a partner. And I mean, these are these are Ivy League kids, by and large, not kids, but young young adults. And who, who believe that they are smarter than everybody else. And in some cases, they are. Mm -hmm. um, but, I mean, to throw somebody into a situation they know nothing about and to advise, you know, people who are running a corporation who know the, the details and know the challenges, and then to tell them that they're doing this right or doing that wrong, um, that's, that's a big ask. And frankly, you know, when I first heard about it, and then talk to people who said that, you know, who are these guys? They come in here telling, acting like they know what they're doing. You know, sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. I remember this one incident, really, um, that uh, Catherine Graham described, the former owner, publisher of the Washington Post. When they were having difficulties, she hired them uh, at the request of somebody on the board. And she said, you know... They came in and for a year and a half, they asked everybody questions and went over and over and over again. And we kept answering them and answering them. And then they turned out a report, which basically just said what we told them mm -hmm. um, it, with a few McKinseyism, you know, lines that made them seem really smart. And she said, at the end of the day, I couldn't figure out what benefit they gave us. And we paid them millions of dollars. So she just didn't understand the business model. And a lot of people told us that. So consulting itself, I mean, it's a huge industry. There are competitors to McKinsey out there. The McKinsey sort of the gold standard, the, the Harvard. Uh, in fact, they have a lot of Harvard alums who work there. There's nothing illegal about what they do. But what you go into in the book is the types of clients they've taken on and the type of advice that they've given. So it, curious, the, the good, the bad, uh, and the ugly, because, you know, ultimately, you know, McKinsey pushes back on, on your book, and we'll get into that, you know, by saying that, you know, you're, you're taking certain things out of context, you're not telling our full story, etc. You know, give us a sense, I mean, Walt, on, on a good day, what is McKinsey doing? And, and who are they helping? And then who are some of the clients that you dive into, that necessarily kind of go against what their official positions are? Well, McKinsey hires idealistic young people, with the idea that, you know, if we do our job right, we're going to change the world. We're going to make it a better place. I and mean, that's what journalists do. That's why I got into the business. So I can understand that. 
And I think and with many of them, they truly believe that and they try and in some cases succeed. And McKinsey is very good at broadcasting their success. They post things on the internet about every 20 seconds. <laughs> but there's another side to McKinsey, and that's why we wanted to look at them. And so, you know, they have their values uh, posted on the walls of all their offices around the world. And the first value is we serve the client's interests above all else. Well, you know, that sounds nice, and they're being paid to do that. Mm-hmm. But what if that client is you know, pushing opioids in the middle of an op- epidemic or advising cigarette companies long after it was known that, to, you know, smoking caused cancer. That, you know, seemed to conf- raise questions about w- what are their values yeah. and how does that mean they're really changing the world for the better? And I think our conclusion is that in many cases, they're not. You mentioned the opioid makers, and, and that's where I think for a lot of people, they first heard about McKinsey for the first time, um, advising companies like Purdue Pharma. And of course, McKinsey has since had to pay more than $600 million out uh, in settlement dollars there. How did they get into the opioid business? And I think you were talking about them advising folks like Johnson Johnson far back. How did they get into the business? And how were they advising companies like Purdue Pharma over the course of the past couple of decades? They got into the business because they saw there were big profits to be made. Um, and, 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 you know, you could always justify in your own mind, I guess, that's how they would see it, that, you know, we're not really doing this to harm people. We're trying to make the company more efficient. We're trying to make it, you know, people are in pain. People do need pain treatment. And, you know, you can convince yourself that you're really doing, you know, God's work by trying to help them. But what they ended up doing is they ended up in the, first of all, it was in the middle of an opioid epidemic. And they were advising more than just Purdue Pharma. There were other opioid makers. And they got into it because they had um, long-time ties to the drug industry, the pharmaceutical industry. And people that, uh, that worked there you know, certainly knew at OxyContin and knew, knew uh, Purdue Pharma. And it was a short transition from that, um, from legitimate drug companies to Purdue Pharma. Uh, and to where they were, you know, adv- one of their famous sayings was they were they wanted Purdue Pharma to turbocharge its uh, sales. They were focusing in on the most vulnerable people mm. and they were advising, you know, the drug detail people to focus on them because they were the most likely to prescribe it. And and, you know, I felt, you know, and I think most people when they heard about this, they said, well, w- wait a minute. You know, they weren't just, you know, trying to trying to get legitimate doctors to prescribe this. In some cases, they probably were, but in many cases, they weren't. And, and, and as a result, people were dying. And apparently, for years and years, it didn't seem to bother them. And in fact, I think one of the more uh, telling examples about, uh, about McKinsey is that when the federal government finally started to crack down on the drug stores and the drug distributors, um, who were who were you know making it too easy for people to get their hands on these drugs when they didn't need when they shouldn't and they were advising McKinsey uh, how to get around these new restrictions they they even recommended a, a different kind of uh, supply chain that would circumvent you know the restrictions yeah I mean he, here here the government finally is trying to do something mm-hmm. they recognize that all these people were dying and they were advising them not just to sell more but how to get around efforts to to you know mitigate the crisis 
Yeah, you were talking in the in the book about how they're like, okay, you guys should spend more time with the nurse practitioners and the physician assistants to get around these doctors who are skeptical. Uh, it seems like you know there's a lot of scrutiny coming your way. You know, let's figure out new ways to spin opioids and oxycontin. You know, it reduces stress, and you can become more optimistic. So, I mean, effectively here as consultants, you know, they were involved in the business, they're involved in the marketing, they're involved in the in the crisis PR, really all aspects for Purdue. Yes, all, all the way up to uh, riding along with the drug detail men when they were visiting doctors to advise them on their strategy. You know, you're not pushing hard enough or whatever they were telling them. But the idea that they would do these ride alongs was I mean, they they were they weren't just dipping their toe into this business. They were jumping head first into it and they were convinced they were they were doing good work. So, you know, at Purdue Pharma, they're out for profits. That makes sense. At McKinsey, you're talking about these ideal idealistic young people who are told they're going to change the world. To what extent were there whistleblowers inside? To were there critics inside who are saying, "Ooh, this feels a little off. This feels a little off mission." This feels icky. Yeah, that's a good way to describe it. Well, I mean, w- one of the reasons we were able to do so much good reporting on McKinsey is because simply we start at the beginning. They hire idealistic people who join it because they want to do good work. And and for a while, they may be doing good work. But when they start to see that the firm's actions don't match their words, that there's a gap between that where, you know, what they were promised to, to do, they're not being allowed to do um, then they get angry. And because they're idealistic, they, they think, well, wait a minute, this isn't right. And oftentimes they called us. Not always, but, you know, I mean, a lot of times they did. We learned that there was unhappiness and we tapped into that. Uh, that's what reporters do. How many current and former McKinsey employees did you end up speaking to for this book? I'm glad you brought that up. Well, you know, they sign NDAs and from the moment they walk into the office, they're instructed never to speak about their clients or how much they're paid. So it's a total, you know, information lockdown. By the end of our book, we had interviewed about 100 current and former McKinsey employees. We're very proud of that. But we also like to, to, as investigative reporters, I've been doing this for decades You want to back up what people tell you with documents and records, contemporaneous records if possible. So we were the first people to obtain a list of their clients and what, uh, how much those clients paid McKinsey. And we did that because we convinced someone, I won't say who, um, uh, that we thought this was important and, and that McKinsey was doing things that made many people over at the firm uncomfortable and, this was a time to stand up and, 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 and help us do the reporting. And so, you know, because we had good relationships with people at the company and outside, we were able to get, get this list. And, and that list was so important to us because it allowed us to, to document the conflicts of interest that existed with McKinsey that they were never discussing, never disclosing. Um, they, would, they would represent um, or advise the Food and Drug Administration at the same time that they were advising Purdue Pharma or any of the other. I mean, they advised all the major pharmaceutical companies. At the same time, they were advising their regulators. Now, McKinsey will tell you that that is not, um, that's not a conflict of interest because we have this wall between the two of them. You know, that just, I think reasonable people would look at that and say, this isn't right. Well, the way you lay it out, they have to have a lot of walls because it's the Chinese and the Saudis and the Russians and the American government (laughs) and the regulators and those being regulated. 
how did McKinsey justify that? And I do know, you know, they've announced that they have made changes in recent years. What have they changed and, and how kosher are things today versus 2016, for example? They did make changes and they made them um, because the media was reporting on them for the first time. They didn't wake up one morning and say, gee, you know, our business model's flawed. We're hurting a lot of people. We could do a lot better. Let's let's decide to have a better vetting process on on who we pick for clients. So they did that. And now they are saying that we we reject, you know, a certain percentage of, of people that want our services. And we establish guardrails on another certain uh, group. But, you know, I should point out that the person who pushed for these changes, who really led the, the campaign to in- implement them, was pushed out of the out of office as managing partner, the, 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 the most powerful person in the firm after one term. And that hadn't happened for decades. So he rubbed people the wrong way. And maybe there were other reasons. I'm sure there were. But you one looking at the evidence in, in front of you has to conclude that this was an important reason. You know, it was costing them money. It was it was uh, no longer made it that easy to, to sign the Purdue Pharma's or or, you know, you know, Russian corporations. So they say they're doing this. Mm-hmm. Time will tell. I mean, I haven't um, some some senior people at McKinsey asked their their employees, their consultants not to read our book. <laughs> I mean, that that doesn't speak well for how sincere they are about going after this. Why not tell people to read it and say, look, we did some things that were wrong, right. that we're re- regretful for. But how can we improve it? We're sort of living in an era here, Walt, in in, uh, in America where certain percentage of the population don't want to read bad things <laughs> no, that's true. about history. That's true. They'd like to generally sugarcoat things that have been done in the past and and move on. One of the other examples, and, and you mentioned them briefly uh, pre, in the conversation, but you go in depth in the book, is the continued advice to tobacco companies, even after we knew what tobacco was oh, doing yeah. to all of us. Take us through the, the uh, McKinsey tobacco story. One of the the great untold stories, and and it's killed. Um, cigarettes are the most lethal consumer product in history. I mean, there's just no question about that. And their 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 counseling goes way back to the, the 1950s, and they stuck with the tobacco companies as evidence was emerging, very conclusive evidence by reputable science researchers that tobacco smoking in, in its many forms was 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 harmful, and so. Despite all this, and again, you know, we go back to these are the smartest people. They hire the smartest people. That's what they want. And, 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 and that is true. They knew what they were doing. They knew that cigarettes killed people, but they continued to advise them all the way, all the way up to 2022 or maybe 2021, just within the last year or two. So several decades after we knew that cigarettes were killing, several decades after, I mean, some of the reporting actually had 60 minutes back in the day when you were there revealing what was going on behind the scenes of the cigarette industry. Yes, um, there was much that had come out. In fact, they continued to advise them after a federal judge had found them guilty of ra- the, the cigarette companies of racketeering. Uh, and, and the judge, federal judge issued like a thousand page order uh, opinion in which she concluded that just about everything the cigarette company said was a lie. 
and 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 they had all these enablers around them that allowed them to continue to to pursue and to push this this poison basically well after that i mean it was years after that mckinsey continued to advise the cigarette companies and they never spoke out about it and and their role in it was never disclosed until till we started reporting on it so i had a personal interest in in tobacco having you know, done some work on it at, at ABC News before I left. So, I mean, yes, they knew what was going on and they continued to work for them. It is just as simple as they're a client that pays us a lot of money. So we're going to just keep going here. What explains, yes. the, you know, McKinsey staying with them for so long? Well, they were making a lot of money. Mm. And like the cigarette company executives, they justified it in their own mind that somehow they were doing, trying to help the company serve their 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 customers and, and they came up with all these rationalizations um, that were, you know, it helps calm people down. It helps people lose weight. It helps people um, deal with their troubles. Um, and that may be true, but at the same time, it's killing people. As I said earlier in this, they you can rationalize just about anything mm-hmm. if there, there's enough money, enough incentive to do so. And, and cigarette companies were paying them a lot of money. You talk about the larger, in the book, the larger economic impact of the advice they were giving various companies, governments through the years, the impact on the middle class, uh, globalization, offshoring, outsourcing. If you can talk about that a bit in terms of the the role McKinsey advice has played in sort of where we are in the global economy these days and income inequality. I think a good place to begin to answer that is 1950, when General Motors hired McKinsey uh, to, to do a study. Uh, well, first of all, let me, 1950 was when uh, the UAW achieved a, a monumental contract with General Motors that, pay, that basically gave them a passport to the middle class. It gave them a pension. It gave them vacation. It gave them all the things that we expect now as, 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 as workers in, in, in you know, a place like General Motors. Well, Later, it wasn't much lo- longer after that, that that General Motors start to worry that maybe the workers were catching up to them in terms of what they were earning. And so they commissioned McKinsey to study all kinds of corporations and figure out whether that was true. Were, were executives being sort of shortchanged and were workers and, and, and were they benefiting more than the executives? And McKinsey concluded that, yes, um, they were catching up. And every year afterwards, for decades, the same study was done. And it basically was, was a way for executives to basically understand what their competitors and, and other C-suites were, were earning. Um, and it became a, like an arms race to, to the top. Who can make more money? You know, who can you know, have more country club memberships? Who can, how can we figure out a way for, for executives to become more prosperous? So, so one of the items McKinsey was advising was specifically executive compensation and how the C-suite can become richer. Yes. And, you know, when, when uh, the C-suite makes money, the corporation makes money right. because the, that's the way the company is structured. It's a shareholder value. That's what McKinsey really pursued. Uh, and, you know, as management consultants, you can kind of understand that. Mm-hmm. And so as a result, back in 1950, um, the average executive was making 20 times the average production worker's pay. Uh, now it's 350 times. The, a- the average executive is making 350 times more than the average worker employee. Correct. 
And I, I believe, and you know, smarter people than me believe it too, that uh, you know, income inequality is one of the great uh, reasons that this country is being torn apart. It, it led to Trump. It led mm-hmm. to all this irrational belief that somehow the system is rigged against us. And 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 McKinsey had a role in, in creating that through, you know, through offshoring, through layoffs, through whatnot. So McKinsey was advising companies like, here, you, here's a way to become more profitable. Lay off these people, set up a factory abroad. What, what are the types of things that they've been advising companies to do over the course of the past few decades that you feel has has reinforced this or driven in income inequality to be worse? Well, they cut jobs, the biggest job cutter around, and they had a reputation for that. And, you know, it's corporate executives, you know, do not relish the thought of having to, well, they, they relish that thought, but they, they don't relish the, the job of telling people that they're going to lose their jobs. And, and we've concluded that, you know, the best way for the corporation to go forward is to cut, cut your jobs um, what they did is they they hired McKinsey to give them cover for that. And if someone complained about it, as they did, they could say, well, you know, we hired the best consulting firm in the world and they advised us to do this. So job cutting was like job number one for them. Mm-hmm. After that, they ended up suggesting that we need to outsource a lot of the work. Let's send it to southern states. Let's find places that can do this work cheaper. And then the next step was, you know, offshoring, where they would send all these, you know, you've got really should set up a factory in India mm-hmm. um, because they, they, they don't make as much money over there. Uh, uh, and so who was hurt by that? Certainly not the corporate executives. It was the workers who lost their jobs, who saw all this, you know, the, the, their commitment to these corporations just vanish in, the, in a heartbeat when they when they were told they were no longer needed. A lot, a lot of pain from that. Walt, the, the pushback you might hear is it sounds like the issue here is capitalism and not McKinsey. That McKinsey's just helping companies work within the system that exists. It is capitalism. And, and I believe that there are many virtues to capitalism. Uh, I just think it needs to have some guardrails around <laughs> it. And I think, you know, history shows that when there are huge profits, people do do some bad things. And um, and so, yeah, I, I just think there, then changes needed to be made. I'm glad you brought up guardrails because, you know, one of the questions coming out of this book is, you know, regulation exists in the government for a variety of industries, right? Whether the FCC and you have the EPA, you have, you have a whole bunch of agencies that are in charge of various industries and then creating rules for those industries, OSHA, et cetera. What exists? And is there even a conversation post-book, post-Purdue Pharma, post-kind of McKinsey, you know, getting some more revelations about it? about how to have some semblance of oversight or regulation when it comes to the consulting industry? Not a single word. You can ask why. I ask why. <laughs> I know the reason. I mean, they have so many connections in government because they advise all the, the agencies that you just mentioned. And, and, they, and, and politicians are, are reluctant to, to take them on for a hundred different reasons. Um, and so it is not being discussed. I mean, it's a tricky subject because, you know, how do you regulate them? Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you regulate a management consultant? Well, I would argue that, you know, what needs to be done before anything else is a little more transparency about who they serve and, and what they're telling them, particularly when it comes to government. Because it's one thing for 
you know, a government official to say, well, I can't give you that information. We could we can file freedom of information requests and whatnot and get that eventually. And they have an obligation to the taxpayers to explain how their money is being spent and what they're doing. But when you hire private consultants to do the bulk of your work or a large part of it, you know, they don't have that same obligation, their same responsibility. So repeatedly, when we tried to find out what they were telling government agencies, they refused to do that. So I think government, at the very least, needs to require them to disclose who they're serving. Uh, and, and had they done that, they would have realized uh, government, you know, senators, members of Congress would have realized that it was not a good idea for McKinsey to be advising the FDA at the same time they were advising Purdue Pharma. Those are the kinds of things that should be taken, actions taken. And how are they advising the FDA? Do we have any sense of what they're, while they were advising Purdue Pharma, new ways to sell Oxycontin, what were they telling the FDA as it was trying to clamp down on Purdue Pharma? Just about everything. I mean, they were advising them on all aspects of their jobs. And you know, what really shocked me was when I talked to these FDA people, who I know and have known for a long time, I have big interest in healthcare, and they didn't know that they were advising, for instance, the cigarette companies or Purdue Pharma. Uh, they didn't know that. The government hired them without doing due diligence or asking those questions. That's correct. I documented dozens of contracts that McKinsey had with the FDA and with the Office of Smoking and Health, and it was just tens of millions of dollars. And no one was questioning this. No one was asking, you know, what possible harm could come from this? What are you telling them? And oftentimes what they were telling the FDA was advising them, like, how to speed up drug approvals, um, which in, in and of itself, at first blush, sounds like a good idea. It started when in the AIDS crisis, when you know, there, was, there was some slowness, definite slowness in coming up with drugs to treat that horrible disease. But they've taken it too far. And now they're you know, approving drugs that, without any evidence that they work, and in fact, with evidence that they cause harm, mm. which is what they did with this Alzheimer's drug, right. at Adjuhelm. So they're coaching both teams <laughs> in a variety <laughs> of places. One other example you bring up is also uh, advising the Pentagon, but also advising China. Explain kind of where you saw potential conflicts of interest there. They advise China Communications Corporation, which is a massive company in, in China that uh, basically is, is overseen by people picked by the communist Chinese Communist Party. And you think here you have this, cap, you know, this, this beacon of capitalism working with this, this company that uh, has ties to the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, that's one thing. But I mean, obviously, what piqued our interest more than that was what was China Communications Company doing, corporation doing? What they were doing was dredging the South China Sea to build these islands, which really caused great deal of concern with the Pentagon and, and military officials because they are extending their influence. China would tell, say, "Well, we're not going to use these for for you know military purposes," but in fact, they have. And so at the same time that McKinsey was advising China Communications Company, which was doing the dredging to build these islands, they were also advising the Pentagon, which uh, opposed the, these islands and, and, and really recognized China as being a serious threat. Uh, there didn't need to be somebody refereeing this thing, saying you can't be doing both. Well, it sounds like uh, the way you laid out 
in this sports analogy, they're coaching both teams and there doesn't seem to be a referee. The, yeah, the only referees really are, you know, Mike, uh, my partner, Forsyth, and me. I mean, the media. The, the media is the referee. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Without us, what no one would know anything about McKinsey. And, and I don't want to take all the credit because there are other news organizations. ProPublica did some excellent work. Mm-hmm. But this, sound, this is a good point for me to make, make say something I think needs to be said, as I, I tried to when I do these interviews. I don't view McKinsey as an evil organization. Many of the people there I've gotten to know and have become friends with. So, you know, I, 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 we, we tried not to do that in the book. Maybe McKinsey thinks we did, but um, I, don't, I don't view them as an evil thing. I just think they need to make changes. Any sense of what changes they've made when it comes to this conflict of interest thing? Because that, I mean, is astounding that, you know, to be able to <laughs> no. say I can both represent Purdue and the FDA and this and that. Uh, well, they haven't made changes. Yeah. Um, they, they said that they're no longer going to advise any opioid companies and they're not going to advise cigarette companies anymore. So, I mean, that eliminates one uh, part of the conflict of interest, but they continue to advise all of the major pharmaceutical companies. And I think most Americans you know, don't view pharmaceutical companies all the time as these wonderful groups that just care about our health. They mm-hmm. care about profits like anybody else, and sometimes to the exclusion of the health of, of patients. So they still work for them, and they still work for the FDA. So, um, no, I don't think any significant um, steps have been taken by McKinsey or government to try and stop that. Uh, there have been a hearing or two in, in Congress where these issues were raised. But so far uh, now with the, you know, the, the, the Republican House, not much is happening. Do the Democrats of the Senate, you know, I, I, you talk about how McKinsey is, you know, so locked into so many various agencies. Of the 535 members of Congress, the 100 senators, the 435 House members, are they also advising members of Congress? How are they also locked in here? How are there none of people on Capitol Hill kind of speaking out about this? No, they don't. They don't uh, lobby for or fund or promote any particular politicians. No, they steer clear of that. They're smart enough to do that. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, you know, um, they control the levers of government and members of Congress need those agencies. Um, They need their help when they have problems with their constituents. Uh, They have their own issues that they want to pursue. And so they don't want to get them upset. They don't want to create this instability that would would cause problems for them. So they steer clear of, of, of really stepping forward and saying, look, this isn't right. This isn't working. People are being harmed. There was one consultant, former consultant, who said that, you know, and, and this is this is how I feel. The McKinsey does a lot of good, but they should figure out how to do less harm. Mm-hmm. And I think if they viewed um, their job through that window, they would be serving a, a, a higher interest. And so they're not alone in this consulting world. There's the Deloitte. There's the Boston Consulting Group. There are other organizations. To what extent did you dive into any of those organizations or are there any examples out there where you're like, listen, there's a consulting group that has you know, made this constitution or this edict for how they do their business? Well, I think we, we did say this in the book and we say it in the interviews that uh, the other consulting companies are, are also have done some things that they're quite embarrassed about or should be embarrassed about. So McKinsey's not the only one that's advising, say, branches of the Saudi government or, you know, Russian corporations or or some of the corrupt elements in South Africa. Um, they all have done that. 
we picked McKinsey because McKinsey said we're the best and we're the biggest. And, um, and we couldn't, I mean, I mean, I don't, I don't have enough years in my life to investigate all of them. <laughs> I mean, I already spent five or six for McKinsey. And uh, so uh, I think we made a point uh, that if this was happening with McKinsey, it's probably happening elsewhere because people see that McKinsey's profitable and they're going to mimic what they're doing. You've been in this business for a while. You've done a lot of investigations throughout your career. What did this particular investigation teach you? What did you find most challenging, you know, as you kind of look back on the last couple of years? Well, um, what it told me is that um, don't be afraid of tackling subjects that nobody else has. Um, that's always sort of been how I approach this. I mean, to be quite honest, it was a challenge to get the New York Times to let me to do this, to let me pursue this. Why is that? Well, that's what I wanted to know. There was a, lot, a distinct lack of enthusiasm. And I, and I didn't understand that because it was so obvious to me that this was a great uh, story and a great project. Uh, now, they didn't tell me not to do it. It just they didn't make it easy for me. And I was asking around, well, is, is McKinsey advising the, uh, the, the Times? Or what's going on behind the scenes? And I kept being told that, well, you know, they do a little bit, but don't worry about it. There's no pressure. Well, you know, eventually the Times, and that's the reason I work there, it's an honorable place. It's a great journalistic organization. And, and they let me do it to their credit at, at, at the same time that McKinsey was advising them. So... Yes, um, it's a challenge. And the message that I want to get out is don't be afraid of, of something that nobody else has, has tried or to investigate, because so many journalists want to just take the, the conventional wisdom, investigate, you know, a government, you know, incompetence and all that's important. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the real power in this society really lies in the corporate suites and, and not enough reporters are, are doing that now you know, more than in the past, certainly. And some wonderful books have been written about uh, corporate abuse of power. But, you know, that that's one of the things that, that I, I guess I came away from. And also that, you know, there are good people in every organization. You've got to find who they are. And, and you do that, you know, month after month after month after month of that people saying, no, I can't talk to you. And eventually you're going to find somebody who will. When's the movie coming out? Depicting your investigation, Walt. Well, the, there, that's a little out of my bailiwick, but um, we, we 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 do have, we do have. I don't know if I'm even allowed to talk about this, but we do have a uh, scriptwriter who's done some good Academy Award-winning movies. So hopefully that'll that'll come out at some point. Major kudos to you, by the way, because you know as you were talking about the you know where most reporters go. You, you mentioned government, you know, with FOIA requests, and eventually you can get those records. And then even in the business world, the publicly traded companies that have shareholders and have to disclose certain things, by choosing McKinsey, you know, that's in the world of privately held companies, right? Correct. So to what extent is there any, like, are, are, if you're a private company in this country, what records are we entitled to at all for any private company in this in this country? Well, with private companies, you can look up lawsuits mm -hmm. um, because everybody sue. I mean, that's the way. Uh, that's just that's how people do business. You sue somebody, and 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 we were hoping to find lawsuits, and there were one or two of them, but nothing like we expected. So that was pretty much a dead end because they settle. No, because. They would say, well, we were just giving advice. 
You know, you got to sue the company. They're the ones who made the decision. And they were able to slip out of a lot of difficult situations with that explanation. And they almost never got sued. <laughs> and if they did, they were able to get out of it. Now, there they're, they're have been a few cases that are still, I think, playing out. But um, no, there were no places I could go to get records. Of a, a, you know, like you said, public corporations are going to be able to access certain disclosures that they make, even yeah. private corporations. You know, but but McKinsey, there's nothing. You know, they don't make anything. Ford right. makes cars. McKinsey makes opinions, and when they, <laughs> and, that, and everybody's got opinions, and where are the records for your opinions? Well, you know, that's a squishy area. Yeah, we told them they had a few options. They chose to take one of those options. That's their prerogative. <laughs> um, you, you said they were able to get out of a lot because of that. What was different then about the Purdue Pharma that led a judge to say, no, 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 McKinsey, you have responsibility here, and it's a significant financial responsibility? Well, they, they just were caught with their pants down. I mean, and, the, and, and, they, and, and they were caught because the, the Massachusetts Attorney General, who's now the governor, went after them when other people wouldn't. Now, they paid more than $600 million. There was a recent uh, settlement of another $200 million. So I think it's up to more than $800 million or, or, or in that neighborhood. Mm -hmm. and, and by paying that, they were able to avoid any kind of prosecution. I mean, the, the main goal of, of investigators, government investigators, unfortunately, I should say, is that, well, we got money paid back to us. And, and that's the most important thing. We can use that money for you know, for, for good things. And that's true. But punishment isn't high on their list, mm -hmm. uh, if, it, uh, if at all. And, and the same thing happened in South Africa, where they were caught with their pants down, you know, working with, with some corrupt elements on public contracts. And they paid $100 million to, to get out of, out of that. So a few cases there where judges determined, no, your advice, actually, there's a crime there in the way you advise these companies. Yeah, well, they said we didn't commit a crime. They've never admitted that. And so as a condition of all these payments, they always say, well, we're paying this money, but we have, uh, we, we say we did nothing wrong. Well, I mean, come on, you wouldn't be paying $800 million if you did nothing wrong. And it's not all about whether you broke the law. It's about whether you, you know, you're a decent human being and trying to do the right thing. Um, so the reason they, they, they took action there was simply because it was, you know, they were embarrassed. Yeah. Um, and, and they and they worried that it would hurt the recruiting. And it did, I think, for a while. So, uh, I mean, look, I, I've, I've taught at Columbia University for journalism for 14 years. And I fully expected that the business school over there would invite us to speak about this this book because, mm -hmm. you know, you would want the students would want to know that. Well, despite many efforts on, on the part of many different people, including students, we were never asked. Until I kept talking about it in interviews like this, yeah. and eventually we were invited to come, but only after the recruiting session had, <laughs> had ended. So McKinsey was no longer out there recruiting. Now you could come over and, and talk to people. Wow. You're touching the third rail, it sounds like, multiple times here, Walt, through your reporting at, you know, at the Times, at Columbia, etc. Fascinating investigation. Appreciate the conversation. The book is When McKinsey Comes to Town. It's out in paperback. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. All right. I want to thank Walt Bogdanich again. His book, When McKinsey Comes to Town, is available wherever you get your books. We have a link in the show notes in the episode. I can't wait for his next investigation, as well as uh, the movie about this investigation and all the things he's uncovered about McKinsey all these years. 
As we conclude here, a reminder to consider joining Mo News Premium for early access to episodes like this one to support more original content, original interviews here um, at Mo News. Also gain access to more content over on Instagram and through the Members Only Podcast. It's also a way to support what we're doing here at Mo News, support independent journalism. You can do that by heading over to mo.news slash premium. You can get a monthly membership for just $7 or $70 a year for the annual. That's two free months if you get the annual package. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. We'll see you soon.